This past week, how many people know that the Mega Millions was $550 million? Big lottery, huh? You were praying? <laughs> oh, no, I thought I heard you say I was praying to win. You know what the odds are, right? Everyone knows the odds. Uh, I'm not condemning anyone for playing the lottery, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I thought it interesting because I went to 7-Eleven, there were droves of people going in and out with cards, you know, tickets in their hands. I said, well, what's going on? They said, the mega bucks, mega millions, 550 million or something. Then it went, nobody won, so it went up, I think, from there. But then I went online and I looked it up, and you know that 70% of the people that hit the lottery end up broke, more in debt than what they were starting. I have a quick story I'd like to share with you. This was a mother of three in a small apartment working four jobs. And then, as in a fairy tale, she won her state's lottery in 2011. But the story doesn't have a happy ending that you might expect. She didn't, she didn't do... Over, she didn't do anything overly extravagant after the 1.3 million got slashed with taxes. She bought a house, got a new wardrobe at the Salvation Army, cut down, just, cut down to just one job, and invested the rest. Honest woman. And then came the phone calls, promises, marriage proposals, accusations, threats, People who used to volunteer to help her now wanted to get paid for their services. Family members, she says, tried to run her life and control her money. Sometimes I wish, and I quote, I could change my name and go somewhere and hide, said the woman who asked not to be identified to prevent further intrusion. So I'd like to share this morning that we have what many people think is a, the lottery, winning the lottery will make, uh, guarantee happiness. And that is not the case, as we see from the, from the statistics. Um, <clears throat> the title of my talk this morning is Restoration Occurs in the Desert. Now, why I shared with this, why I chose this topic, I was reading a book, Gateways to the Torah. And this is taken, many of the portions of, of this uh, talk is taken from uh, uh, Rabbi Russ Resnick in that book. Portions of it were taken from that book. And it carries into, it, it also goes back to where I spoke about two, two weeks ago, where we needed to abide in uh, John 15. We need to abide in the Messiah. When, he, when we abide in him, he abides in us. So we're going to take that concept and we're going to expand it a little bit further this morning, and I hope I have enough time. Let's turn to Exodus 19 and read verses 1 and 2. Or you can just look it up. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from the Rechidim, and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. In the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, 
They have come to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain where Adonai reveals himself to Israel. The whole purpose of Adonai revealing himself is so Israel may know him who rescued him from Egypt and to serve him. The mountain experience is etched deeply in Israel's imagination from the past. We read that when they met God in Exodus 16 and 70, there was thunder, lightning flashes, thick cloud hiding its summit as Moses ascended to receive the Ten Commandments. With such an image in mind, they may have forgot that this mountain is in the midst of the desert and that Israel, awaiting the revelation of God, is encamped not in the foothills off to the distance, but in the desert opposite the mountain. The word desert in Hebrew is midbar, sometimes translated wilderness, and refers to a barren place lacking in water and vegetation, not inhabitable by humans. Why, you have to ask yourself, would God bring his people to the wilderness? If we look at Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20, and we'll read it real quickly, we have an idea what, what God's heart is. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful homes and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from house of bondage. So we see from these verses that God encourages us and encourages the Israelites that we should remain humble before him, that we should trust in him, and allow him to do good for us. And that do not get filled with pride and forget Adonai who provided all, all things to you. The word midbar, desert, contains the Hebrew word root. The Hebrew root, debar, meaning midbar is a place of words. A place of revelation. God's revelation of himself. That's a tremendous word. It's a place where God gives his words. We read in Hebrews 4.12, don't have to bring this up, it describes that the word of revelation from God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Is our heart pure? With godly thoughts, we have to ask ourselves, is our heart in alignment, in harmony with God? These are the self-evaluations that we should go through as believers because Israel was, was required to do that in the desert. In the desert, the normal props to human pride and comfort fall away. Our usual distractions are missing, 
entertainment, activity for activity's sake, and other things. It is the very place how our hostility towards God is revealed because our own basic necessities, which we cannot supply ourselves because we're so dependent on God, which our old man, our old nature, hates. We hate to admit that we cannot do without God. When, first, when, when Moses first encountered God in the burning bush in the desert, it is at Mount Sinai. And in the encounters, the place is described as Acha Midbar, or on the far side of the desert. The Mount of Revelation is in the heart of the des desert, a place of solitude on the other side of the desert. The encounter at the burning bush set in motion the tensions or the tension of the entire first half of Exodus, which Sonia mentioned today, out of Egypt and into the desert. Before the encounter ends, God tells Moses that he will send him to lead the children of Israel out of bondage, Exodus 3.12. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have led the people out of Egypt, you will serve me in, in the, you'll serve God in this mountain, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a location where God will meet with his people a time and a time of receiving from him revelation, words of knowledge and words of wisdom. The goal of Exodus is the Mount of Revelation. It is to meet God in the desert and receive from him all that is available. The desert is the opposite of Egypt, a place of worldly abundance, human pride abounds, abounds and heroic, uh, heroic architecture and worship of idols exists. The desert is the terrain that will separate the Israelites from everything Egyptian so that they can serve a God who is holy, uncorrupted, glories with light, and transcends the world of human accomplishments. The desert in Sinai is a place where God calls Israel to be holy. It is a place to meet God. If we look at 2 Peter, we'll also find 2 Peter chapter 1, 2, and 4. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Yeshua our Lord, as his divine power has given to us, given to us all things that pertain, pertain to life and godliness through, here it is, the knowledge, knowledge of him, revelation of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now you see why God took him out of Egypt and brought him into the desert. He wanted to remove the corruption of the world that existed in them at that time. 
In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, we read, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For the earth is mine. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. End of quote. So we see here that God wanted a special treasure. He wanted to pour out his blessings. He wanted to bring them to be a, pe a nation of priests to represent him. That's what a priest does. He represents God. Israel was called, shall be called a nation. Israel was called a nation set apart by God for his purposes. All nations shall be blessed by you was a blessing stated in Abraham's revelation. The journey through the desert had prepared Israel for all God's purposes, and so are we. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There it is. In the heavenly places in Messiah. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him. The holiness is the ability to stand in God's presence without any blame. Having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Yeshua himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise, and here it is. Why are you coming to the desert? To the praise of his glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. God seeks praise. And he drew the people out of Egypt to bring them into the desert so that they may worship me and praise me. Go, folks, we are called to that, special, that same calling. The three-day journey for Israel into the desert begins a repeated series of lessons in which Israel learns two essential truths. In the desert, they realize that they are vulnerable, dependent, and in need of God. Israel encounters God's faithfulness, number two. Israel encounters God's faithfulness precisely at the point of dependency. In the, de in the desert, things become very simple. We we encounter hunger, thirst, and ultimately our inability to meet even our most basic needs ourselves. Remember John 15, 4, it says, For Yeshua said, If you abide in me, no, John, and I abide in you, for without me you can do nothing. It's the same principle. He was trying to teach them that without him they can do nothing. Egypt, even with its bondage, conspires to deny these truths through its abundant supply of food and water. At moments of weaknesses, at moments of weakness, throughout their wandering, the Israelites would continue to long for provisions of Egypt. They remembered the fish they ate, the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, and the rest of the stuff that they had eaten in Egypt. Egypt resembles America in that 
Our abundance deludes us into thinking we are really something special in ourselves as the Israelites did. I will read that again. Egypt resembles America in that our abundance deludes us into thinking we are really something special in ourselves as the Israelites did. We in America have a problem that we think God's blessing is when he abundantly gives us things. He abundantly blesses our homes. He makes our homes larger. He gives us more, more, and more. And when the reality is, he wants you in the desert with him. While the desert experience reveals our dependencies and weaknesses in ourselves, it is our need that we truly learn to rely on God. Despite Israel's fears, God did not lead them into the desert to die, but contrary to live in freedom from the false gods of Israel, Egypt and the entrapment that they bring. To be truly free in God is the freedom to serve. Without the principles mentioned before, our dependencies on God, and, we, and God meets us at the point of dependencies, there will be no encounter or relationship with a holy God. We sometimes imagine or hope that our spiritual journey that provides immediate transitions from Egypt to Sinai and separates us from the old ways and brings us into a complete revelation without first the revelation of discipline, trials, and preparation. Discipline, Hebrews 12, uh, Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have come be become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not do much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? That's discipline. The Father disciplines us. And trials in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Would you bring that up, Rob? Beloved, do not think it is strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice in the extent that you partake or Messiah's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And I like to highlight when Messiah's suffering, you partake of Messiah's sufferings. We all partake of his sufferings. It's part of the walk, people. And finally, the preparation is First Peter 3, 13, uh, 13 and 17. And who is he? Who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord, set them apart in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, humble yourself.
having a good conscience, that when they defame you as an evildoer, those who revile, you, revile your good conduct in Messiah may be ashamed. And that's the preparation, the mind. Our preparation is a, 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 a position that our mind sits where we know that suffering is part of the walk. Discipline is part of the walk. And prep, we have to prepare ourselves for the difficult times. We will not desire the encounter with the Holy God if we think we are some, something special. In closing, the earliest accounts of Messiah opens in the desert with Yochanan the Immerser. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Like Moses, Yochanan calls the Israelites out to the des desert to encounter God. They prepare for the encounter by immersing in the Jordan and confessing their sins. Yeshua also goes out to John or to Yochanan in the desert and is also immersed. But then he goes further into the desert and becomes tempted by the devil. After the devil's experience, after the desert experience and temptation, Yeshua is ready to go back to the villages and towns of Israel to minister, but continuously returns to the desert to seek God and pray. As the story continues, Yeshua takes his disciples and introduces them to the desert experience where God's revelation and words are given. They establish a rhythm of engagement with needs of the people and return to the desert to seek the presence of God. The desert experience, folks, is the essential to our formation of a believer's heart and trust in God. We need to embrace the desert, the silence of the desert, the solitude of the desert as a source of abundance. For again, in the Gospel of John 15:4, if, if you abide in me and I abide in you, for without me you can do nothing. Amen? Let us pray.